Well, they say you always got to watch out for the little guys. That's true, isn't it? Wily little dudes. And that was me my whole life growing up. I was the, the little guy. And I was as sketchy as they come. So when we come across a passage that's this short, let us not be fooled into thinking that there isn't so much here. There is. This passage is really pregnant, not only with the power of Christ, but with pathways for us, ways to now live in Christ. In summary, continue in Christ. Stay the course. You've heard of him. You've believed in him. Look, there's all that stuff out in the world, and it's not, it's not bad, right? As Christians, we can't do that. You know, houses are bad. Money is bad. Well, I don't see you in a van down by the river preaching the gospel, so apparently not. These are good things. God made everything. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we live forever in Christ. But they're not ultimate things. So you've believed, Colossians, you believed, Santa fans, that Jesus is the way. He's the light of the world. He's the hope. Now continue in it. Stay the course. After three glorious chapters, this is Paul's hope and longing for them and for us. Remember, he begins with this beautiful prayer. He's so thankful for their faith and the fact that Epaphras has given this wonderful report about this young church of baby Christians who are still young enough in their faith that they haven't been fully corrupted by religiosity and going through the motions. They love the Lord. And Paul says, focus on Christ. He's the beginning and the end. He's the firstborn of all creation. He holds everything together by the power of his word. Indeed, the mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in you now, the hope of glory. As I hear Paul's encouragement to continue steadfastly in the ways and the works of Jesus, that's what I want. It's what I want for me and for you. I want to grow in Jesus. I want to believe, not just when times are good and it's easy to believe and grace perhaps feels a bit cheaper, although it's not, but in the challenging times, I want to grow and believe in my suffering. This last week, I sent a little pastoral letter out via email with a link to that challenging and beautiful Tim Keller article where he's wrestling with God like Jacob in public, asking the question as a pastor, can I actually now believe the things I've been telling people to believe for 50 years? Tim shares his story about a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and what it's meant for him and his wife, Kathy, to to really say, is this real or not? He shares these words. He says, but as death, death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realized something. That my beliefs, my trust, would have to become just as real to my heart. Or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God, God in the abstract, God detached from relationship. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection. These either had to become life-gripping truths or quickly discarded as meaningless. Oh, and that's what I want 
for Christ in me, around me, above me, through me, and with all of you to be that real in my life. But as I look at my life, I realize that that's pretty hard. It's hard for me, and I think it's probably hard for you. It's hard because I'm tempted toward either pride or indifference, self-sufficiency or laziness, and I'm also tempted in all the same ways that the Colossian church has been tempted these last three chapters. The false teaching of Jesus plus and the secular Roman worldview that leaves them constantly groping for power and anxious. Paul says to continue in the faith, you've got to be careful and watchful because there are ditches everywhere. One commentator says that walking with Jesus is like walking on this tightrope, slippery slopes and ditches on either side. Of course, Jesus himself holds you up. But the view to either side is perilous. For the Colossians and for us, this is so germane, there's legalism, self-righteousness, religious pride on the one side, and an anxious licentiousness on the other. So on the one side, you have this little faction in the church led by some false teachers. Now, I, I know, I know, it's really hard to believe that there's a faction in a church. <laughs> you know. And here we are. These false teachers are drawing from the Old Testament Jewish tradition, claiming that if these new believers don't follow the right rules and laws and Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, that they're missing out. Or worse, they're upsetting God. They add to this law a mysticism about the fact that they themselves possess some sort of secret knowledge. And on top of that, on top of this Jesus plus idea, what you really need to do is get serious. You see, some of you have Jesus as your Savior. That's good. You're young in the faith. You just became a Christian. You're in Colossae. Pin a rose. But now you need to make Jesus your Lord. You need to get serious. Enough of this childlike faith. Enough of this simple gospel. Oh, and how do you do it? Well, come to our secret meeting, of course, and we'll share with you our secret knowledge. And this is all around us. Turn on the TV, and you've got some guy asking you to send $19.99 in for you know, an anointed prayer rag and his secret to the Christian life. Let me just tell you right now, there is no secret. Jesus was born, lived, crucified, and rose from the dead in public. All of it happened in public. There's no secret about it at all, and there's nothing that can be added to the finished work of Christ. That's the legalism. But what about the licentiousness? Here we come into contact with the Roman worldview. And like all, uh, like all secular worldviews full of the bad juju of these conflicting binaries, this irony, on the one hand, power and glory and pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Prowess. Build your kingdom. Make men know your name. Like an unending game of fifth graders at recess playing king of the hill. Grope your way to the top and do everything within your might to stay there. But at the same time, and here's the irony, you have to do that. It has to be all about you. Why? Because there's no trust in the gods, the little g gods. Now, I know that you're, you, know, you don't have a statue of Zeus in your house, I hope, and you're not you know, laying out bread and incest to Hermes. 
Oh, but we vow to need all sorts of other things, right? How am I feeling today? Because how I'm feeling is what's true. How's the stock market doing today? You see, the, the, the problem and the irony here is that these, these fickle gods, these fates, they can never be trusted. You never really know how they feel about you, and it, it causes a constant anxiety. For the people in this day and age, for the Colossians, they saw their neighbors never resting because you could never be sure if the gods were going to come down and bless your crops or steal your girlfriend. You just didn't know. So it is so often with us when we err toward that side of the ditch. And so we're all on the same page here. We're all on the same page as it relates to the obstacles around us and inside of us to continuing in Christ. The challenge is before us, but the path is indeed perilous. We need help. In fact, in a place like Christ Church Santa Fe, it's so diverse, I love it. You guys are all such weirdos because you live in Santa Fe. It's awesome. Don't you love Santa Fe? It's like, how did you get here? I know you're as weird as me. How did you get here? We're all on the same page in this respect. Reminds me of a scene from a show I've watched recently called Dairy Girls. Dairy Girls follows the lives of some young teenage girls in the Northern Ireland town of Londonderry, or as the good Northern Irish Catholics refer to it as, Derry. You don't say London in those parts. Their lives are marked by terrorism and the troubles and the police getting onto your school bus to see if there's a bomb, and yet they seem rather unfazed by it. It's the water they swim in. They're more concerned with the troubles that teenage girls would normally face. And yet after one particularly horrific act of terrorism, the youth rise up and decide, we're done. It's time for the Protestants and the Catholic youth to unite. And so they decide to call in a priest and invite everybody to go to a single day camp where they will learn to get along. Everybody shows up and, of course, gets off the bus. The dairy girls, the Catholic dairy girls, are sizing up the cuteness of the Protestant boys, who they refer to as prods. They all get in the room, and the priest sets up two blackboards. On the one, here's everything we don't agree on. On the other, here's everything we might agree on. And within a half an hour... And a few near fistfights and the pulling of hair and screaming and weeping and gnashing of teeth, the what we don't agree on board is full. And the what we do agree on board is empty. And it remains empty through the duration of the camp until, of course, at the end, all the kids do what kids all do together and they get in trouble. So they have to call in these parents, these bearish, old school, mid-90s Irish parents who are pulling ears, spanking their kids in public, and saying words that we can't say here. And it's in that moment of all the parents yelling at all the kids who all got in trouble that one young girl stands up and walks up to the blackboard that says what we can't agree on and writes a single word. Parents. Parents is what we have in common. We're all here. We're all busted. It's the universal predicament. And so it is in Colossians. Our universal predicament is how we will now as Christians stay in the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit and continue with Christ. 
to not become lazy or passive or or crusty or hardened or calcified, and at the same time, not think that you got to be on cloud nine all the time. Because no one lives permanently at mid-school summer camp on the last night of the last song in the altar call. No one lives in that place. Paul's not asking us to. Instead, he gives us grace. He gives us grace for the growth, for who you are. For God has made you a specific person with loves and likes and affections and family, and he's put you here in Santa Fe for a reason. So we're given these two paths of grace. Pray steadfastly and walk wisely. So that's it. That's the whole exhortation of the sermon. Paul gives us the application right away. Do you want to continue in Christ? Do you want to grow? Do you you want to be who God's made you to be? Do you want life and freedom and the fullness of life? Devote yourselves to prayer. Weird. Devote yourselves to prayer and walk wisely toward outsiders. So the first path, we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. Devote yourself to it. Have you ever known an athlete? There's like three athletes in here right now, and the rest of you are here. But, but have you ever known an athlete? I mean, they're, it's devotion, man. Like, I'm just raising my hand. Who's ready for, you know, Taco Bell or Second Street or who's, you know, let's go devote ourselves to prayer around nachos. Not so with the athletes. Their body, their time, their discipline, their will. If anything is worth doing, we make time to do it. So so let us not be fooled. We are already a devoted people. You know, the Enlightenment may have designated man homo sapien, homo sapiens, man who knows things. But long before that, St. Augustine said that man is homo religionis, man who is devoted to things. What we love, we pursue. What we believe is ultimately good, we make time for. Paul says we're to do this with God, to devote ourselves to prayer. Now, let's clear up a few things about prayer. Prayer is not you using every big Christian word you have ever known in one run-on sentence. And I am as guilty as the rest. I'm actually pretty good at praying. If you want prayer, you know, come, come to my office and I'd love to pray for you. Get out my 98-pound Puritan book, dust everywhere. You know, open it up to page 9,742. These and thous. Guys, prayer is just talking to God. Prayer is just having a conversation with God. And praying together is us being together to talk to God. And this is what Paul says we're supposed to do? To pray? As I thought about it this week, I was like, really? (laughs) Really? Not work. Not build, you know, not write letters to the Roman government, you know, not form a a, a justice committee for the city of Colossae. Pray? And I think one of the ditches we find ourselves in with the command to pray is this, this idol of efficiency, this idol of efficiency that it, you know, prayer doesn't work. Why would I devote myself to that? Why would I spend time doing that when I could be doing other things? You know, a lot of you guys wake up every day and you've got a list. And a good day is when you basically get through the list. Some of you are so good, you get through two lists every day. So pray? Really? 
devote myself to it, spend time in it, talking to God, talking with others to God? I think Paul wants to slow us down. I think Paul understood that it is in the hearts of people to work and work and work. And his word to us is you can cease striving. You can rest. You you can rest. You don't need to worry if there's secret knowledge out there. There isn't. You don't need to be beholden to the fear of the fates and what the little G gods might do to you. They have no power. They don't exist. No, you can rest. You can pray. You can believe that the most efficient thing that can be done is the thing that the world looks at and goes, you're kidding me. I think by doing this, a couple things happen. First of all, we remember that it is God who is sovereign. Colossians 1 has told us that. So why pray? Well, we we pray not to change God's mind, but to know God's heart and to have God's heart. The one big answer here to continuing in Christ is keep on knowing God. And I would encourage you and challenge you to read the book of Psalms that beautiful book of 150 prayers and songs, and look at how people pray. They pray all kinds of prayers in all sorts of times in their life, but man, they are real prayers. There is no religious pretense. There is no mask. There is no hiding. There is visceral, honest, rawness about, Lord, I need you. Oh, and by the way, where are you? Awake, help, save, Answer me. And so, folks, Paul tells us to pray because prayer is the work. Martin Luther famously said, I have to pray. And someone asked him, Dr. Luther, how could you? I mean, how could you find the time? If you know much about Martin Luther, he was prolific in his writings. And he had a wife and kids and they made beer. I mean, the dude was busy. Okay? He was busier than you and me. He was a busy, busy guy, writing letters, traveling, sharing the gospel. And you know what Luther's response was to this individual? He said, it's precisely because I have so much to do that I have to pray. Prayer is the work, and the work is joy because it's relationship. I mean, imagine if we lived like this. Talking to our Father. Coming with humility and joy like children. It's so funny. You know, when I get home today and see my two girls, eight and ten years old, if I would let them, and God help me to let them, they are going to want to tell me everything they have done since the time they got up today. It could easily be a three-hour monologue if there isn't, you know, a reason to abbreviate or interrupt. Some of you are grandparents. You know, when you get around your grandkids, I mean, they're just like, they they could go on all day. You're just wondering, like, can you please put some of that energy in a vial and give it to me? Because I could use some of that. This is how we're to continue in Christ. This is our hope for growing in the Christian life. When we pray about, Lord, would you keep me to the end? Would you finish the good work that you've started? There's no magic pill. Talk to God. Let God talk to you. Talk with others to God. Now, now some of you need to do a little bit more talking. 
I think, honestly, some of the, some of the guys, myself included, could not be great at this. I can't have a relationship with my wife if I never tell her how I feel. Well, it's hard to express my emotions. Uh, yeah, I know. But do it. She needs it. God wants to hear them too. It is hard. But there's a few other of you, you know, like myself, men of the new millennium, who were actually the talkers in the relationship. I could talk forever because I have very special things to say. I'm an only child. Every word of mine is precious, okay? And sometimes I need to learn to zip it so that my wife can speak and be drawn out and share with me the things on her heart and what she needs to say. But the point is keep on, keep on knowing God. Keep on talking to Him and talking to Him together. So how are we supposed to do this? And by how, I don't mean how do I talk to God. I mean in what sort of way should we be praying? And Paul gives us two answers here. He says, be watchful and thankful. These are really for you and for me. They're for us personally. We're to watch our heart to add nothing to Christ. Oh, because the temptation is real when, when it doesn't sound like God cares or perhaps your prayer is not being answered or perhaps like in Colossae, there are plausible arguments that would take away from or add to Christ. Paul says, keep watch through prayer. Prayer is a good place to wean and to weed out false teaching because you're letting God's word speak to you. He also says, be thankful. And one commentator put it this way, we are to be thankful because thankfulness in prayer leavens prayer. It leavens prayer like yeast so that prayer is never all about you. There's one thing you write down today, maybe it would be this, a little acronym for prayer, A-C-T-S. Some of you know it, some of you don't. I love it. A, adoration. We start with praising God. Our Father in heaven, glory be to your name. Do you see how that resituates you in the upside down kingdom? Puts God on his throne and you on your knees? And yet Christ on his knees lower than you, exalting you as a son or a daughter of God? Glory to your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom is going to come. Lord, I read the news this morning and I feel a little shaken. I turn on the TV, Lord. Your kingdom is going to come. Adoration. Then see confession. Lord, I confess that I need you. That I can't save myself that you need to help me. I confess that sometimes I don't believe that. I confess that sometimes I do believe it, but I'm afraid to believe it because I have shame and baggage and trauma and I don't even know how to sort it all out. T, thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. And there are plentiful articles in you know, psychology today that have shown that exercising thankfulness actually rewires our brains. It actually does something to us chemically when we start thanking God, even for the simple things. Lord, hot water. Lord, hot coffee this morning. You know, Lord, the heater still works in my house. Lord, I haven't seen a, a single drip yet from the flat roof. Praise. And lastly, supplication. Lord, supply these needs. Lord, here's what I need. So, so there's... God doesn't despise your list. Of course he wants you to come to him as his child and say, Lord, here's what I need. But by the time you get through adoration, confession, and thankfulness, 
Even the way you're asking for what you need has been reshaped by Christ. So prayer has this two-way effect. It binds us to God and to each other. Prayer is God's J.B. Weld. Somebody give me an amen if you love J.B. Weld, bro. I love J.B. Weld. I'm basically, I've got a hammer, a screwdriver, and J.B. Weld. That's my entire toolbox. That's all you need. And duct tape. And WD-40. J.B. Weld, I mean, you put that stuff together, it's amazing. It's unbreakable. Well, we are one body with many members. And the way that God holds us and binds us together is through prayer. I'll see, prayer is for us, but it's also for others. I love verse 3. Paul says, will you pray for me? Now, again, we can gloss over this, but it's a huge deal. That the apostle Paul, yes, Paul, the greatest of all the apostles, basically, at this point in history, more well-known than Peter, has written more than any other apostle, has traveled more than any other apostle, has planted more churches, owns more Lear jets. No, not that last part. That Paul would humble himself? Ooh, especially in the Greco-Roman culture of glory, that he would humble himself, groveling Jew, and get on his knees and ask for these Colossians to pray for him. They're nobody. First of all, they're baby Christians. They don't know anything, which is what makes them so awesome. And secondly, they live in nowhere. Of all Paul's letters, the letter to this little city, Colossae, is by far and away the letter to the most insignificant place. Ah, but God cares about insignificant places. And significant people need prayer. And so he asks them, will you pray for me? Because in God's kingdom, there are no John Waynes. In this church, there are no John Waynes. There are no self-made men and women in the kingdom of God. We need one another. We need one another deeply. We need to talk to God for each other, about each other, and we need to do it together. What's amazing is that as Paul writes this, where is he? We read it in the text. I am in prison. And you can imagine, Paul's a doer. He doesn't just want to sit on the couch and binge Netflix. He wants to go, 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 and he can't. All he can do is write letters. But he knows that God's word must go forth. Paul's in prison. But Paul is one man. The gospel knows no bounds, and the word must go forth. What does Paul say? The door needs to open. What will open the door? What will open the door? Prayer. That's it. Prayer is the thing that God will delight to work through as a means to open the door that the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory would go forth to the whole world. Recently, I was watching one of these YouTube videos where, you know, you click on it and the title says, you know, this video will make you cry. I'm like, yes, click. I want to watch. I'm a sucker for this. I love those like emotional videos that kind of get you. And I saw this one and I'll be real. It got to me. Video comes on. It's a picture of a beautiful young woman, long, beautiful, you know, dirty blonde hair. And all of a sudden, you see her husband get up behind her on a stool. They're in a bathroom facing the vanity mirror. And the husband takes a pair of razor, you know, we call it head shavers, and starts taking off her hair. And you realize that 
this young woman, probably in her late 20s, early 30s, has cancer. And undoubtedly, she's begun her chemo treatments and she's starting to lose her hair. And so they're at the point now where it's, it's got to go, right? And, you know, stripe by stripe, he's taking off this woman's beautiful hair, her glory. She's looking in the mirror, you know, tears are coming down her face. Right about this moment, I'm starting to get some dust in my eye, unexplainable. And you're just like, man, this is heavy. You can just see on her face the hurt, the sadness, the fear, the loneliness, the desperation. She can't even do it herself. Her husband needs to help her. And as he finishes the last cut, they both look at each other in the mirror, and as if out of nowhere, he grabs the razor and puts it to his own head. And that's, that's where the penny drops. And she just starts bawling, right? And laughing, smiling and bawling at the same time. And I'm like, why did that hit so hard? Why does that hit so deep? It, it hits deep because he is saying to her, you are not alone. You are not left or alone or forsaken. You don't need to do this on your own. There's someone who's with you, who's in it with you. I am with you. I am in this with you. When we pray, we are reminded that God is in it with us and that we are in it together. Having done that, Paul says, we should walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Having devoted ourselves to prayer, now walk. You've prayed, now walk. You've talked with God. He's talked with you. You've heard from him. You've been reminded that he is with you. Jesus didn't shave his head. He went to the cross for us. Now walk. If the word must go, then we must go. If the word must go, then we must go because the word doesn't go without us. Paul says in Romans, how are they going to hear unless someone goes and tells them? Now, Paul encourages us to walk wisely. What does that mean? Walk in wisdom. I think far too often, unfortunately, the church has fallen into the ditch of thinking that wise walking is skeptical walking. Fear the world. World bad, church good. And so we fall into the ditch of separatism. Oh man, if I really want to be devoted to God and devoted to prayer, I'm just going to go to the monastery and never see another person who disagrees with me. I'll go live my life on a hill. Or perhaps a more 20th century evangelical version of this, I'll only ever be thinking about heaven and forget that heaven isn't going to be some floating realm of disembodied naked babies. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Embodied spirits, sinless, where all the books are opened to worship God and explore the universe forever. And that actually sounds cool. So walk in wisdom doesn't mean separatism or skepticism about the world. It also doesn't mean compromise. Oh, and we've seen so many churches fall onto this side of the ditch. You know, if we get cool, we'll attract the youth. The young people will love us. Well, guess what? The young people don't love that. In fact, all the studies that have been done on, you know, young millennials and Gen Z is that they want something real and rooted. They already get enough pizza and pony rides out in the world and laser light shows. 
always trying to give them dopamine and sell them something. When they come to church, they want something that's deep and rooted and real. And that's what Paul means when he, when he says walk wisely. To avoid separatism and compromise. How? By being in the world and not of it. That's what Jesus prays. You know, Jesus prayed for you in John 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the future disciples. You people right here in Santa Fe. And of all the things he could have prayed on his very last night on earth, one of his main prayers is that we would not be removed from the world, but that we would be in the world and not of it. Now, this assumes a few things, a few very important things. Thing number one, brother and sister, and I hold the mirror up to my own face here, thing number one is that you actually have some relationships with people who don't agree with you, who aren't just like you, who don't walk and talk and act just like you. And that those relationships are deep enough that you might actually have the opportunity to walk with them and toward them. I know that we're living in a time of cancel culture. And it's frustrating that anything and everything could be canceled. Thank God I didn't have Facebook in high school. Praise the Lord for that. There's no way I'd have a job right now. Speaking of ditches, I'd be digging one. But you know what? We don't get to sit there and despise the cancel culture. because Nor do we get to enter into that and dehumanize people who are made in God's image by just writing off the folks who disagree with me. I don't know, can't they just see this is right? My political view? No, instead, we are to be the antidote to cancel culture. We are to be the ones who say, you know what? Jesus, by grace, put us inside the circle. We want you to be inside the circle. We don't want you to be canceled. We want you to be cared for. We don't want you to be written off. We want you to be written into the great story of God. So when Paul uses the word outsider, you know, non-believer, he's not being derogatory. When Paul says outsider, he's talking to Christians. He's saying they're not yet insiders. When he says non-believers, he's talking about not yet believers. Show them something more beautiful. Show them something more grounded than the news cycle. Show them something more powerful than all the powers and principalities of all the governments of all the world. Show them something more beautiful than, you know, power and pleasure and mountaintop experiences. If we have been loved, then we want to see those who are outside inside. If we have been embraced, we want to see those who are made in God's image embraced by God's Son. And folks, if we're going to do that, we need to continue in Christ. We need to avoid the ditches. And if we're going to continue in Christ, we have to have Christ. The craziest, most wonderful thing about this passage is that in our absolute need to have Christ, to continue in Christ, he already has us. That's what Paul's been telling us now for three and a half chapters. In the same breath that we are commanded to continue, we are reminded that he has continued first. Jesus prays for you. Did you know that? You think about this, man. When you're at home this afternoon doing your happy hour, I want you to talk about this. 
Jesus prays for you. Romans 8 says he is interceding for you by name. He's not like all the other priests who had to sit down and retire and get tired. He never sits down. He is standing for you. I got that wrong. He's not standing. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, resting in the finished work, saying your name before the Father. He prays for you. Hebrews 7, 25 says that Jesus continues forever as your priest. And he walks with you. It's the whole ministry of Jesus. The tax collector, the sinner, the drunkard, the leper, the prostitute. All the worst things in the taxonomy of sins. All the way to the absolute worst sin, which is religious pride and self-righteousness. And he walks toward those people for three years who were trying to hang him on a cross until he could no longer walk but only bleed to die as a forgiveness for their sins. Oh, we need to get that. We need to pray in that. We need to walk in that, in the grace of God that not only forgives sin, but gives new life and conquers death. And then we will see what God can do. Because Jesus has promised to continue with us at every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for your word. Jesus, I just praise you that we, we can hear good news every week. And it's because of that good news, the gospel of your grace, that we don't have to devote ourselves to prayer. We don't have to walk wisely to earn your love or your favor. Oh, but because of your great love, we want to. We want to be alive. We want to be beautiful, powerful, shining beacons of your truth in the world. True images of who you are, Jesus. And so help. Would you help us? Because it's hard. The ditches are deadly. And we're so prone to wander and fall in. We need your strength. And to have your strength, Lord, we need to be fed. And so you've gathered us here. Little children, a young church, in a not so significant global city, you've gathered us here around your table week in and week out to nourish our souls with the very strength we need to do the very thing that we hope continue in Christ. So do that now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.